Wow, Derek, that gong sounded great. <clears throat> right, thank you, Cynthia. I have nice gongs. <laughs> cool. Uh, this is my normal chime. It sounded much more, it's very resonant. Cool. How's everybody doing? All at once, like. No? Anyone? Good. <laughs> we just gave you the big universal thumbs up. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm looking, I'm doing uh, my homework here. I'm looking for the package. Reading. I just located that. Now I'll be back with you. We have a lot of material to go through tonight, don't we? Plus uh, leftovers. That's what I mean. Yeah, the leftovers. We're reheating, we're reheating the leftovers. Jill, nice to see you, welcome. All right. Ah. Is there a buzzing sound? No. Plugged in. The power thing plugged in, but it's not buzzing anymore. Now, now, it's, now it's buzzing. Oh. <laughs> wow. <coughs> I see when I plug the both in together. How's that? Good. Let's start with our chanting. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever, excuse me, whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps in the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Majushri, please. Thank you for filling in for me. Is that a cool chant? Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, knowledge uh, takes place in fields, by the way. That's why they say some people are outstanding, and in particular, farmers are outstanding in their fields. Oh, yeah. oh you saw that coming, huh? And uh, the path of omniscience has many steps. It's a many-step path. And then uh, there's a clear mirror of intellect. Sometimes it's not so clear, but okay. Anyway... Uh, good evening. Welcome. Hi. So, uh, uh, 
if we make it through everything tonight, we have only one more class. It's pretty amazing. This is class 11. And uh, it's been quite a journey. A lot of reading, huh? What's next, Derek? Well, next is the, the material we'll go through in class 11 here tonight. So, oh, you didn't mean that, did you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll circulate a little, little write-up instead of using up time tonight for that. See if I can entice people to come back. And uh, it's been a lot of reading, but hopefully it's been enjoyable reading. Hopefully you've been able to read most of it. Some of it's repetitive, like particularly tonight. I mean, there was there were two pages that just like seemed like the same thing over and over. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I made a mistake. <laughs> I put the same reading in twice. Oh, well. I did notice that. <laughs> So uh, tonight, geez, should we really go through Ken McLeod? That's some heavy stuff. Wasn't that a, a cool, cool uh, presentation by Ken McLeod? Yeah. Uh, the last one. It's like, oh, so that's how you do it. <laughs> it's just like Kamala Sheila, right? I'm sorry? He, he's, he does the Kamala Sheila thing, right? Isn't it the same? I don't know. Kamala Sheila goes through the four stages, right? Well, no, from our reading tonight. Oh, I see. Well, I'm going to go back to last week. It's, uh, package 10. I'll put it on screen, but it's on page 20 as we start. It's called Insight and Dismantling Illusion. It starts with uh, insight and dying. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> hey, by the way, one of you all suggested to me that I like name the packages consistently. It's a really sort of rude thing to suggest, I thought. <laughs> and number them, no less. So anyway, I did that and I sent them to Morgan. Is Morgan here? I sent them to Morgan so on the website. Hi. Hi. On the website, uh, if, when Morgan gets to it, there'll be versions that have the same name for each week, except for the number of the class, and then they're all paginated. And then at the end of the course, sometime after the course, that's a long period of time after the course because it goes like into the future, but um, I will put them all together into one. I will correct some of the, the packets that were screwed up. Anyway, so we're on page 20. Inside and dying. Inside has two essential components. Dying, like, you know, letting go of our current belief system. Or not even like a system, but more like 
unconscious way of believing that what we see is real or exists the way it appears and then pointing out instructions. And he refers to uh, something at the beginning of the chapter that I snipped this out of. And he, he, uh, he was translating for this Lama who, uh, Tibetans, you know, their view of the world is the Abhidharma cosmology and the world is flat. And uh, probably a lot of Tibetans still think that to this day. I know His Holiness Karmapa, the 16th, when he came over, he, he was certain that the world was flat, but he flew in an airplane and, and he used to uh, have talk. There was one period where the schedule was light and he would have talks every day with my boss, Carl Springer, and ask him like all this stuff about science and this and that. He was just like fascinated with this idea that the world was round. Anyway, so uh, Ken goes through that with his Lama and his Lama goes through a period of like depression, you know. It's like the Kubler-Ross stages of uh, losing, of grief. First you die, then you see. You can't see before you die because the patterns cloud the seeing. So, you know, we have to totally give up the way that we view our current world, thinking that, um, you know, we're a boy or a girl or we're big or small or we're humans or we're good or bad and so forth. Inside practice is, by its nature, frustrating, challenging, and frightening. That's quite a marketing uh, appeal. And then he tells this cute story about this guy with his hat, right? We don't die willingly. The more invested we are in the world's projected by your patterns, the stronger the denial, anger, bargaining, and despair of depression in sight. I'm sorry, and, and the despair of depression. I'd say we're all pretty invested in the belief that things truly exist. So uprooting that is, is not going to be like a walk in the park, as they say. Inside practice is inherently frustrating because you're looking to see where at first you're unable to see beyond the world of the patterns. You know, there's a now very popular, become very popular is this idea of the shadow. This idea that, you know, there's a lot of stuff about us that we don't see because it's our, it's our shadow and we don't really look in the shadows because it's dark. And it's a little bit like that, like that. Okay. Another way to look at inside practice is to see that the process has three stages. Shock, awe, disbelief. No. Shock, disorganization, and reorganization. Right? Like you encounter the difference between what you thought was true and what turns out to be true. Um, and then you go through a period of like chaos, you know, everything sort of falls apart and then gradually you pull things back together somewhere, ideally integrating the new understanding as opposed to rejecting it. The first stage starts when you see beyond the illusion, you experience a shock and you react by denying what you, what you saw, that, sorry, that you saw what you saw, saying that makes no sense, I'll forget about that. 
unfortunately, uh, more fortunately, the scene when we actually see, it's not so hard to, it's not so easy to deny it. It's too vivid, real to ignore. So then you become angry. It's like, I thought I was real. What the fuck? My whole life, I thought I was real. And I thought everything in my world was real. Everybody else, and I thought life had purpose and meaning of like, uh, you know, in a very relative sense. And um, it's difficult to become angry because your illusion has been shattered and you can't go back, but you're stuck. You don't want to go forward. You're still attached. So you're anxious and the anxiety gradually matures, sort of molds maybe into grief. Now know that you have to go forward. You experience, you experience the pain of separating from what you understood. Just like the Lama in the example experienced pain at the loss of his worldview, the world being flat. Then you enter the disorganization. You withdraw, you become apathetic, lose your energy for life, become restless, and routinely reject new possibilities or directions. Now he's ex- describing sort of extreme like situations, shock. Um, through the path of meditation, we all experience little versions of this whole scheme, you know, where we see through um, how we interacted with somebody yesterday, or like what's going on at work or in a relationship. And this happens over and over again, little, little pieces, little pieces. Um, but he's obviously talking about a much larger realization. You withdraw, become apathetic, lose your energy for life, become restless, and uh, reject new possibilities. Surrender to the changes taking place, but you do nothing to move forward. The risk at this point is, is that you might remain in disorganization, become depressed, and just sink into the mire. You hold on to an aspect of the old world. Parents who've lost a child in an accident or to violence, for example, have great difficulty in letting go. They may keep the child's bedroom just as it was, you know, like for many, many years. It's really uh, one of the most difficult things I'll bet in the world is to lose a child. Their views and expectations have been shattered and they cling to a few few of the shards and they may stay in that state for a long time. And then reorganization, you finally experience a shift and you actually let go. Let the old world go and the shards and you accept the world that you now see with your new eyes. And what formerly was seen as true is now seen as untrue and you enter a new life so and this so that's the general overview and then we dive into how to actually do it inside practice it's confusing you feel as if you're staring into nothing you have no idea what you're doing so what is he talking about he's talking about insight meditation practice for Pashna in the way that we've been seeing it presented in the tradition over and over and over again where shamatha is settling in the nature of experience, whatever that experience is, and achieving stability in that strength of mind, strength of uh, mindfulness, precision, and knowing what's going on. And so fully knowing whatever one is focused on 
as shamatha in a very stable, strong, and clear way. And then based on that, we give rise to Vipassana. One way or another, and we've seen a number of different ways. We've seen uh, reference to a very long-winded system in the, in the Mahayana tradition, where one goes through uh, a lot of reasoning using logical formulations to understand that uh, the self is not real as we think it is, and the phenomena are not real as we think they are. And uh, in the the Theravada or Hinayana tradition, the focus is on the three marks of existence, seeing things as being impermanent, suffering, and essenceless. And in the Vajrayana tradition, which is the tradition that we inherit and and that Trungpa Rinpoche presented, which he inherited, and uh, he's not really explicit that he's teaching Vipassana, from a Vajrayana point of view, but he, he really is in that he's following the main uh, point of Vipassana in the Vajrayana tradition is to focus on the mind instead of going through the myriad range of possible objects that one could analyze to understand their emptiness, or instead of focusing on the uh, the affiliation of a sense of self with the skandhas, the form, feeling, perception, or formation, we focus in on the uh, affiliation of a sense of self with the with our consciousness, with our awareness. So, in Vipassana practice, we look at the nature of the mind to see the true nature of the mind as being not anything findable and yet present. So that's insight practice. So you feel as if you're staring into nothing. So we're looking into the mind. And at first, it's very hard to look at the mind. I don't know. I'm hoping that people have tried this and that uh, you have a sense of what I'm talking about, that it's very hard to find your mind to look at it it's like where do i look at it from how do i look at my mind you feel as if you're staring into nothing you have no idea what you're doing you probably have felt the same way in other practices but inside practice amplifies considerably um so he he had his group spend a peaceful enjoyable month cultivating attention and that's his way of expressing shamatha in english so he had them do shamatha for a month, and that's a very traditional system. And Trungpa Rinpoche did that with us. He had us practice shamatha for years. He never really introduced, however, Vipassana practice in a in a um, in an overt, concentrated, um, explicit way. But as you saw from the readings that I pulled together. He, he presented the aspects, the basic aspects of the practice of Vipassana as it's uh, handed down through the, through the tradition in uh, bits and pieces here and there throughout his reading. So it's, it's there, but it's not, he never 
like really was that explicit about it for whatever reason and that's that's a whole other discussion but um and it so if you traditionally if you have trouble practicing vipassana if you have trouble looking at your mind then you need to come back to shamatha and uh, one of the risks of presenting vipassana explicitly is that people who are not ready may think they are ready and spend a lot of time trying to do vipassana without much success whereas if they had spent that same time in shamatha they would benefit greatly from it so you have to be really honest with yourself and ideally also work with a meditation instructor be very helpful Okay, so he he uh, dropped the bomb of insight on them after a month, and that was a good prep as well. By the way, you know, you, you, it's a sort of lead in. Trump and Bishay did that as well. That sort of uh, set up approach. It's not a long period. Rangjin Dorje, Tibetan master, who happens to be the third karmapa was uh, required to cultivate stable attention day and night for three years before his teacher gave him instruction on insight. So, <laughs> stable attention is very important. Most difficulties in insight come from not having stable, strong shamatha. For insight practice, make your formal practice sessions at least 45 minutes. Now, uh, that may be a stretch for people as well. Uh, if you're still doing 20 minute sessions, you're gonna to wanna to increase your sessions to at least 30 minutes. And we did see that reading by Trump Rinpoche saying the ideal time period was 40 minutes. This gentleman is saying 45 minutes, but it's in that range of uh, 35 to 45 minutes, let's say. So you have enough time to adequately settle and stabilize and then try Vipassana and then come back and stabilize again. And it doesn't mean that like, okay, you're going to reach a place where there's no more, dis where you're not pulled away by distraction. There's always thoughts, but it's the difference is whether you're pulled away by them or not. And uh, so having a stable basis doesn't necessarily mean that you're no longer uh, pulled away by distraction at all. But it means like, that you're, you know, maybe there's like a uh, a ratio of like how much how much on a moment by moment basis you're present versus how much on a moment by moment basis you're distracted. So, like if you look at like a five minute period of time, you know, how much of that time are you really present in your meditation practice, and how much are you distracted? And I think initially people are distracted most of the time for five, you know, like 90% of the time. So that's got to sort of shift to somewhere probably in the range of um, you are there at least like uh, probably like, let's say 40 to 60% of the time. And that, that may seem odd, like only 40%. 40% compared to 5% or 10% is huge. 
and um, and then you need to uh, you need to see if that presence that increased amount of presence gives you the stability to then look look at the nature of your mind look at awareness okay so then spend another 10 minutes doing the energy transformation practice so this was the practice that uh, uh, <coughs> There was a reading on this a couple of sessions ago, a couple of classes ago, of uh, the frames of reference. And uh, focusing initially on a small frame of reference, a small square, and then having it progressively get larger until you're able to sit with your uh, experiencing the full visual field. Um, you know, and, and that's a good way to, to measure that 40 to 60% here ideal of uh, you know when I do, when you do that or when I do that how much of the time am I actually able to relax into experiencing the whole visual field without collapsing down and, and that technique of opening to the full visual field it um, it on the one hand it's very uh, clear that when when you are caught by uh, some point in your visual field that you've lost being present, you've gotten tied, pulled away by distraction, that makes it very clear. And then it's also very clear that, that you're not distracted when you're able to sit and experience that full visual field. So do that. He says 10 minutes. Um, I, I would say that depends on how able you are to do that if you're now familiar with doing that like you've been doing it for a while just do it and um, spend like maybe five minutes just in that well we do it from the start of shamatha and just be in that open frame of reference the whole time and until you do vipassana and actually while you do vipassana because insight is about seeing beyond the limitations of the patterns. You need a level of energy and attention higher than the level of energy in the patterns. And that's what I've been describing, a percentage of your time. You need more percentage of your time in presence versus the percentage of your time in distraction. Uh, let's see. Okay, then spend 20 to 30 minutes working at insight. The cardinal rule for insight practice is work from a base of stable, clear attention. When you look at the nature of experience or the nature of your mind, you will fall into confusion again and again. You'll look for it and discursive thoughts will take over. will erupt in you and you'll fall into a thick, dull states of mind and you feel as if... This is an interesting experience that... Um, if you're not if you're not familiar with this pattern of uh, not succeeding in looking and then going into this murkiness, you'll feel like you've lost the ability to to even do shamatha at that point. So you have to just sort of like refresh, you know, like what you do on the computer. You just refresh the screen or something. Uh, let's see. So reestablish. Stable, clear attention by letting go of looking and returning attention to the breath and then return to looking. 
Looking involves these three steps, exhausting experience, cutting the root, and resting in each. I'm sorry, resting in seeing, not each. Exhausting the experience, cutting the root, and resting in seeing. Each of the meditation exercises is divided into these in order to make clear what is being exhausted, how to direct attention to cut the root, and how to rest. The insight practices given here use questions about the nature of mind, such as, what is it? <laughs> you may come up with logical or philosophical answers, but for the purpose of developing insights, such answers are worse than useless. If you just repeat, you know, oh, my mind is empty. It's a clear, vacuous void. Because we all know, you know, we know these answers to some extent. But they reinforce your reliance on the conceptual mind. So we're learning how to look with our non-conceptual mind. It's an entirely different way of looking. Awareness, not the intellect, sees the nature of mind. So you see the nature of mind, not with the active part of your mind looking, but with the inactive part of your mind experiencing. Looking is not actually a great word because uh, looking has this sort of subject-object implication to it. And it's more like a relaxing of the subject-object um, paradigm and then letting letting whatever it is you're, you're trying to understand as opposed to like using visual terminology over and over, letting that emerge. May come up, let's see, they reinforce, uh, so use the question to direct attention to mind or hold the experience. I'm sorry, use the question to direct attention to mind or experience, which is what I've been trying to explain. Not, not a conceptual cognition, but an experiential ex type of cognition. Hold the question. Attention forms and begins to penetrate habituated structures of thought and experience. If you can hold it, holding the question, meaning hold the looking, hold the experiencing, stay with it before it dissolves. This will trigger reactive patterns. There'll be, you know, the most common reactive pattern is like, what am I doing? Am I doing it right? Did I just see it? You know, what are they talking about? Is that it? And so forth. Hold the question in the face of the reactive mechanism. So see the reactive process of your mind. See that as well. That's part of your mind. You're looking at your mind. Your mind has thoughts and stillness and memories and all sorts of wonderful stuff in your mind. So just look at whatever it is that, that happens. Everything is... is uh, game for looking at. Attention gradually penetrates the patterns and be able to look more deeply or for longer periods. I still like this analogy of it's like it's like either you're falling back and and therefore you can see more. You know, we're we're often uh, captured and distracted by the foreground. So it's a matter of like stepping back. Or this this uh, way of analogy of like sinking down and then looking under. 
you know, we're like in the water, you're, we're all attracted to what's on the surface. Just like sinking down under the water and then looking. You know, and you look up at the water and you see the surface of the water and sometimes what's above. A scene often arises as soon as the patterns are penetrated, but does not, then you need to cut the root of experience. How do you know whether you're experiencing scene? Generally, you will know, but you should have your experience examined by your teacher. <laughs> Examine your experience. Let's see. Open, show me your experience. And, and I'll examine. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit like, yes, sir. Hey, can I interrupt you for a second? Yes, sir. Can you just just mention what you said about like looking again? Like what like um, like the phrase "looking" is not totally clear. It was like relaxing the subject-object paradigm. Can you just like men- like repeat what you said, or just a little bit about that? If you have a moment. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if I have a moment. <laughs> I really yeah, enjoy. I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> That would be acceptable. I understand. No, this uh, this is a great and uh, a great question and a perfectly opportune time for it. What do, what do we mean by looking? That's like the heart of the question, isn't it? What do we mean by looking? And it's sort of like um, may, maybe a way to describe it is is uh, where are you when the lights go out? You know. So Brent is not with us tonight. He's got a blackout. So his apartment is black. You know, you know, lights go out. You're in the dark, right? And um, in the dark, you're trying to sense what's around you in a different way. Like, like if it's actually pitch black, like you know, and I don't know if you've ever any of you have done like a sensory deprivation tank. But, you know, pitch black, you, you literally can't see your hand in front of you. And then you're like, uh, you try to recreate your uh, global positioning system, you know, your GPS, internal GPS. Like, where was I standing when the lights went out? And like, where's the door and the wall and the cabin? And I'm going to bang my head on and everything. And so you're trying to like look at your world from a different way in that example. Does that help at all? You're trying to look from like a different mechanism. You know, we're so used to mapping out, you know, those of us that have uh, eyesight are blessed with working eyesight. You know, blind people's totally different thing, right? But uh, we're so used to mapping our world with our vision. And, uh, you know, trying to sense your way around when the lights are out is a, a little bit like the looking that's going on. Because, so the analogy is that even though we use the word looking, you're not looking with your, your vision, visual sense consciousness, right? Looking and seeing are, uh, we're using those terms just because they, because they mean uh, seeking and finding and uh, technically they mean that in the visual consciousness scheme the dotus or whatever but we also use them in english to uh, go beyond that you know what are you looking for in life that sort of thing right 
So you're you're looking with a different uh, part of your body. The lights go out. No more vision. It almost feels like experiencing isn't totally accurate either, though. Like in using like experience, like you know, what's your experience of it? That that's not totally in line with that with what you're describing either, though. Um, that's great. Okay, so let me go one more step. So cool. The part I left out is that <laughs> the lights go out and you're trying to sense the world around you without the vision sense, so in a different way. But you still have this sense of uh, subject and object. It's like, okay, I'm standing here and it's pitch black and and now I have to make my way in this world of darkness. And there's an inside and an outside. There's a subject and an object. Experiencing is a non-dualistic feeling. So it's like if you then, uh, you know, the lights go out and then you feel inside you like... Feeling... um, Feeling the blood flowing in your body or the energy flowing in your body. I don't know if if people feel that, but um, ideally, and and I find find that this is, I think this is uh, very helpful in shamatha, is to refine your your sense perceptions really uh, precisely so that you can feel the energy in your body the movement in your body from the flow of blood or energy or neuronal firing, whatever it is, there's like movement in the body. And uh, because uh, you are your body in some sense, you're experiencing that in a, in a way where it's not quite a subject and an object. It's not like you, you can look at your legs and say, oh, I feel the movement in my legs. It's like you're in the movement. You are the movement. And so your awareness, your awareness, you know, feels like this, uh, um, three dimensional field that we, we, uh, inhabit. And so we're sort of feeling, uh, experiencing that <clears throat> that field, the field of awareness. And just briefly put this out there, little hint. There's, there's two ways of looking at awareness, two ways of looking at your mind. One is like you look at your mind as it experiences anything. And there it's like you're looking from inside outside. And the other way of looking at your awareness is the opposite. And that's the best I got. <laughs> right, at least right now. I'll I'll think on it, see if I can add more about it. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. 
Um, I just wanted to find out because I had been confused lately about whether or not that is still thinking, still perception, even when you're having a non-cognitive um, or non, you know, an experience of that three-dimensional um, field of experience. It is it is still thinking in the mind. Well, see, uh, the problem comes down to what are thoughts and what is, is the mind anything beyond thoughts? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we would all agree that the thoughts are not different, separate from the mind. Mm -hmm. And that there is there are other things going on in the mind than thoughts. Okay. How's that? I'll work with it. <laughs> you know, so that was a hint. It's like, you know, so what What else is there and you're going on in the mind that's not thought? And then, you know, and this is the traditional Mahamudra system of looking at the nature of mind is, is you look at different aspects of the mind. You look at this, what's called the still mind, the mind when it's still. And that's like looking at the so-called field of awareness. And then you look at movement, you look at thoughts. And you, then you look at, are they different? You know, they feel very different. But how can they be different? You know, so that's really getting at the crux of the of the looking. Is first there's how to look, you know, like uh, like dissolving yourself in whatever you're trying to experience. So it's not like you're looking from inside outside, and then uh, looking at the seemingly different types of experience that our cognitive faculty enjoys. Uh, let's see. Cutting the root means turning attention to what is holding the question. Oh. We have to, we have to, uh, what is it? Blame the messenger? Kill the messenger? <laughs> it's like, who's asking that question? Don't entertain the messenger. Don't entertain the messenger. Okay. <laughs> In holding the question, you dissolve the cloud, clouding influence of the patterns. So when you try to look at the mind, the you will experience this confusion of who's looking at who and what and where and how and what's going on am i doing it right and where is where is this i that's doing it to whose mind and so on you know and that's endless the the onion effect right But you got to stay with that and not get lost in the in the proliferation of conceptual 
thought that will occur of asking yourself, am I doing it right in, in a million different ways? The question holds your attention and reactive patterns are unable to function. So if you're able to stay with the question. And so uh, this is an interesting way of referring to the looking. It's a, it's a question. It's just like a question mark. Your being becomes a question mark. Your mind is a question mark. Still the pattern of subject-object fixation remains and prevents you from experiencing mind nature. There's, you know, the the, the subject-object dualistic framework of our mind is extremely deep and fixed. So it's not going to dissolve immediately. Turn the attention back on what is looking, what is holding the question. Looking back, looking back, turning the light around, turning the light of awareness onto itself. Redirecting the attention breaks the subject-object fixation and seeing can now arise. You know, if, you, if you're able to do that, look at who's asking the question without shifting into discursive thought. And it will probably only last a split second, maybe. You know, if you're lucky, it'll happen. And there'll be like a little fizzle. At a certain point, the question, the looking dissolve into nothing. You know, when there's a genuine, when it genuinely becomes like this, looking back into itself, non-dualistically, it's like there's nothing going on. You feel as if the looking just fell to pieces. It's like, what's what's happening? Where am I? That's that's the scene. See if you can rest there without recovering. The reflex is to recover. The mind is habituated since birth, since beginningless time, whatever, to recover its subject-object conceptual mode. But if you can actually let go of the recovery and just rest there, that's the next step. <clears throat> Don't make any more effort. Initially, the scene will last only for a short time, perhaps only a second or two, which is actually sort of a long time, I think. And maybe that's just a, uh, a reflection of my lowly experience of this. Return to holding the question and cutting the root. So you, you repeat this. If you become confused by dullness or busyness, then stop. And, and that's said to be very important that, that you like keep the keep the exercise very clear. If you're able to do it, you, you try again. And if you're not, and if it's sort of deteriorated into too much discursiveness or fit or sort of a conceptual fatigue, then you just stop. And you reestablish shamatha. So inside practice is. He says, best done for short periods with great intensity. Honestly, it's it can only be done for short periods. And the great intensity is a little bit misleading in that it feels like you have to do it with this great intensity. It's more like when it happens, it's intense. If it doesn't happen, there's no intensity. If there's no intensity, it's not happening. 
when it's happening, it's intense. For the last five to 10 minutes, just relax and rest, sit with your mind open and clear, let the energy and effort disperse and then go about your day. And notice he doesn't say reestablish attention. At the end, it's a little bit like you're doing just formless meditation without even really going back to shamatha and just sort of seeing what is going on. No agenda, you've dropped the agenda. This is like the fourth stage in the scheme of four stages that we saw so many so many examples of. Practice transforming energy for short periods throughout your day. So as you go back your day, open the field of vision. See if you can stay there without force, forcedly holding it. At the same time, regard all experience inside and outside as a dream. That may, may be a little bit of a stretch for people, but um, I think an alternative is that, you know, we know uh, because we're all scientists in the West and we've learned the reality of our perceptual system. We know that our experience of the world is a projection of a very complex system of neurons. And if you can flash on that, it's, it has the same impact as experiencing everything as a dream. When we say experience everything as a dream, it doesn't mean everything is a dream. It means experience it as a dream. How do we experience things as a dream? We, we realize that it's a dream and we treat it differently. Whenever you can stop and look at what you're experiencing and posing the question, what is this? I don't think he's talking about the objects. What is this as you like, you know, pick up things at the grocery store? What is this? You read the label. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. That the effort keeps the practice alive in you and interrupts habituated functioning. Throughout the practice, it's that regular interaction with a genuine teacher, unlike me, is very important. Pitfalls are numerous. Pitfalls filled with pit bulls, very still or very clear states of mind are easily mistaken for experiences of seeing mind nature. This is a very interesting statement. We all, I think, have this where suddenly, like, we'll have great clarity. And traditionally, there's a big difference between experiences of great clarity that arise either in shamatha or in practice or in post-meditation and Vipassana. And the difference is that in Vipassana, based on that clear state of mind, we're, we're look, we look or see or experience the nature of our world, our self, our mind, whatever. That's a very different thing. Inconsequential experiences are commonly taken as important insights. You can become fixated and lose the intention and so on and so forth. In insight, you're trying to see what you cannot see. That's not, should have been at the beginning, I think. That's a very profound statement. You're trying to see what you can't see. How do you search for something you can't find? You have to die to how you currently search for things, how you currently experience things. You know, currently we experience things in this subject-object 
way of labeling, you know, this whole idea of labeling. Rinpoche talks about this in the profound treasury, all labeling. We're constantly labeling everything, whether it's, whether it's out loud or verbally, uh, non-verbally inside or verbally in, uh, inside to ourselves. But there's this labeling going on. Uh, you have to die to how you currently look at things. You need to. You need someone to hold the possibility of moving through death. The importance of a teacher, like going through, like losing your reference point. And ideally, you, you can, if you can find a teacher who knows that experience, um, that teacher can show you how to move through that. To die, you have to let go. Uh, so you need someone who inspires the trust and confidence to let go. Inside practice is based entirely on the raising of direct experience. You're not instilling an understanding, as in many other types of meditation. We're not, we're not, uh, you know, initially we, there, there was some phraseology around uh, ex, uh, meditating on the understanding previously um, cultivated when we when we study the view you know and this is this is the difference between conceptual understanding and direct experience we cultivate the view using conceptual mind and the view leads us to the precipice and then you got to be willing to jump out of the whole scheme entirely of conceptual understanding some people progress quickly and then uh, to turn to the practice of presence, the uh, Christmas. Others work long and hard before they see the mind nature. If you're unable to connect with insight, then you need to work on the earlier meditations in greater depth. And the earlier meditations that he's referring to in the book are basically meditations that um, cultivate um, merit such as uh, loving-kindness, compassion, tonglen, and of course, shamatha. Okay, so then he goes through this fourfold scheme that um, is the way that the, the uh, Mahamudra tradition interpolates, so to speak, the four stages of uh, Vipassana that we went through in the last class, I think. And the four stages we're seeing the emptiness of the outside external world of the object, the percept, seeing the emptiness of the perceiver, and then um, letting go of the antidote, you know, using the, the Lojong slogans, uh, seeing that the, the the emptiness of the understanding that arises from seeing the emptiness of the percept and the perceiver, and then letting go entirely. And so they call this, they translate that into appearances or mind. And he says, life is but a dream. That He's added that the traditional is uh, all appear, uh, appearances are but mind or only mind. And just to scroll through them quickly, and I'm not going to go through all of these because this would take probably even more than this class. Mind is empty is the second stage. And he's, he gives the Lojong slogan, examine the nature of unborn awareness. 
emptiness is natural presence. Letting go of the understanding. Letting go of the antidote. And uh, what, what the Mahamudra, what the Vajrayana system in general does, and what Mahamudra does in this case, is instead of emphasizing only the uh, the absence side of experience, it also points out the present side. So letting go of the understanding, we experience em- a complete emptiness of the subject and object and the exercise, and then emptiness emerges as natural presence. And then natural presence is natural freedom. That presence can't is not anything in itself. We have to liberate that natural presence by letting go completely. Otherwise, we become theistic and we hold on to presence as if it were something. Presence is my term that I'm using and and that this tradition is using to indicate or refer to the unity or indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity. And so we just rest. Rest in the nature of things. The, the slogan is rest in the alia, which is below the alia vijnana. So just to go through one of these, let's, I guess, go through the first one and the three steps. Exhaust the experience. So exhaust the experience means uh, you have to exhaust your conceptual mind. Your conceptual mind is going to try to do the exercise. And in order to go beyond the conceptual mind, you have to um, somehow leave you have to somehow leave behind the, the conceptual mind in order to succeed at the exercise succeed so to speak and uh, the only way to to leave behind the conceptual mind because if you try to cut the conceptual mind it proliferates if you fo- follow the conceptual mind it of course proliferates um, so there, it's the middle way. Is you just let conceptual mind burn itself out. And that's that image of uh, the kindling and the creates the, the wood creates a fire and it burns up the kindling and the wood and the fire disappears. So you're exhausting the searching, the con- the conceptual part of the search. Take an object, look at it. What is it? You know, and then he goes through uh, a bit of a Madhyamaka uh, analysis. A book is a label. What do you experience? A red triangle? You're labeling. The book may appear, sorry, a red uh, rectangle. <laughs> Not too many books are triangles. Um, a parallelogram, whatever. The color depends on the light and so forth. What is your experience? Seeing is also a label. So, you know, initially we're, we're getting uh, a glimpse into the difference between the label and the object, right? The, the label is book and the object is red triangle.
Every time you answer the question, note the labeling and return to your experience. Keep looking past the labels to the actual experience of seeing the book in appearance of shape, form, and color. So your conceptual mind is going to answer the questions, and your conceptual mind is very smart. It's going to notice the answers. It's going to answer them correctly. And you have to wear out that conceptual mind because it can't get at what we're trying to get at. Um... Where does the bare experience of the object take place? Does it take place in the object? Probably not, because it's our experience. Does it take place in you? Well, the object is not in us. Is it in between? So this is the... the uh, he's going through like this traditional scheme of you, you analyze objects, and then you analyze uh, the, the sense perception the activity of sense perceptions. Where do the sense perceptions occur? And there's a famous sutra where the Buddha does this dialogue with Ananda about the senses. That's quite interesting. It's like where he uses hearing. He says, where is the hearing taking place? And they go through this long, laborious dialogue. Keep looking at the experience, asking again and again, what is it? You can do this with sound as well. Where's the sound? Use the, use the question to direct your attention as opposed to getting into the conceptual part of the question. Use it just as a means of like focusing the energy of inquiry. Reasoning, deduction, inference are all distractions. Look with your mind to see where the sound is. He recommends using a headset, like I have. You have the impression that some instruments are to your left and others to your right, you know, the stereo, etc. Where is it actually? Where is it experienced? Keep asking questions to direct your attention to the experience itself. You come to a place where there are no words. And, and we talked earlier about this experience when you repeat a, a word like over and over and over again and it sort of turns into mush. It's, a, it's similar to this. After you keep asking these silly questions, stupid questions, then they sort of fall apart. You come to a place where the, where the appearance of red shape arises, not in you, not outside, you're just there. Similarly with the music. Practice cutting through labeling until you can hold attention and sensory experience itself. When he says this, you might have you might mistake this to think, oh, he's presenting an additional step, and that's not I believe that's not what he's doing. He's giving a, a name to this process. He's saying the whole thing he just described is cutting through labeling. So practice it until you can hold attention and sensory experience itself, and then you cut the root. Now pose the question, what's the experience there? Keep the experience the object and the scene and attention and now look back on the awareness if you start thinking or wondering about what experiences you've fallen out you know if you start discursively thinking about it you're trying to feel it relax and go back to the pure experience and then ask again repeat it what is experiencing at some point you experience a strange shift the usual framework of subject object perception collapses for a moment you see that what arises as experience is your mind. You are clear, awake, present, and perhaps a little awed and puzzled. 
And the shift is to a different scene in which appearances, that is what arises in experience in mind, that is experiencing itself, are not separate. So that's a very clear, direct, and good explanation of what the sort of success is. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, I think it's a little similar to Magic Eye. You guys, anyone familiar with Magic Eye? Right, can you do it? Al and Brian. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? It's like there's this shift that happens, right? So it's it's very similar to that, I believe. I've heard. I have really no idea. Um, and then you rest. No more project. Rest in the scene. At first, it lasts, you know, it disappears right away. When it fades, don't try to recover it. If you try to recover it, it'll, it'll just be like recreating a conceptual version of it. Instead, just go back to the start. Go back to, uh, you know, zero. Don't pass. Go or whatever. Anyway. Look at the object, go through all the labels until the experience of the object arises, this pure experience. Cut the root by asking, who's experiencing? What is experiencing this? So that's cutting the root. It's like, the root is like the root of the experience. And the experience is a sort of subject-object experience. And then initially we're like looking at the object and then we go, but where's, where's this going on? And that cuts, fizzles the, uh, the starting point. When you're seeing shifts, rest and seeing, don't do anything more. If you keep asking questions, at that point you spin meaninglessly in confusion like a dog chasing its tail. Gradually you'll be able to rest for longer periods and seeing shattering the illusion that subject and object are independent and separate. And then recall the instruction, regard everything as a dream. Now perhaps the instruction makes more sense because you can't, you can't like find out where where perception happens, appearance happens. So it's like, what is this world that I'm floating through, really? Appearances arise in experience. What arises in experience is not separate from what experiences, which we call your mind, just as in a dream. What arises in the dream is not separate from the mind that is dreaming. He goes through a number of others. Uh, you know, he goes through the other three. And, oh, that's it. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll pause there. Any questions? Comments? Complaints? Any complaints? Just trying to get a rise out of you guys. Scarecrows. <laughs> uh, Dad? Ah, uh, Henrietta. Always rely on Henrietta. <laughs> Thank God. Um, yes, ma'am. The biggest thing for me, because I'm very much a beginner in this whole Vipassana thing, uh, is um, realizing that asking the question, what normally happens for me when I ask questions is I want an answer. Oh, perfect. And so 
the biggest shift for me, and it was not like an explosion, but it was a big shift in realizing that <laughs> not to expect an answer, not to, to, to not come up with an answer, you know, not to reduce it to a conceptual exercise. So that was, for me, the biggest shift. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for sharing that with everyone else. That is that is a major, major uh, aspect of the whole thing. Is we think we're gonna, we think it's an exercise uh, that we're going to uh, succeed at if we apply ourselves to it, and then we'll find the answer. <laughs> so it's known as uh, resting and not finding the answer. Thank you for that. Should we forge ahead? Was there anything? Uh, Rob, surfing reality. I, I don't know. The, what, what pulls me away from conceptuality is, is actually more an attitude, I think, of um, curiosity. That's good. So it's just sort of like, like my dog, I think of my dog, my dog is always asking me questions. I can tell because her ears perk. She asks questions with her ears. She's not, she's not conceptually forming words in her mind. She doesn't speak English, but she is questioning. So I try to, I try to learn from her and just, you know, ask the question without words. It's good. Be like your dog. Yeah, I try to be like my dog. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Moving right along. Tonight uh, we're supposed to go through, we did this. Measure of accomplishment, suppleness. It has all the... Uh, it goes through all these funny things. Let's see. Um, this is an outline. Let's go through uh, John Wynn-Conchal's presentation. Okay. We're on page three. The measure of accomplishment of Vipassana. When suppleness is obtained, Vipassana is said to be accomplished. So we encounter suppleness again. We encountered suppleness as the... Uh, accomplishment and culmination of shamatha, and it's also the accomplishment and culmination of vipassana, and it's the same sort of thing. It's a pliancy, or as Trungpa Rinpoche said, a synchronization of body and mind, or body, speech, and mind. And uh, it's it's uh, making the mind fit, making the mind and body fit to do what it wants. And so there's a lightness and uh, an energetic quality to it and a uh, what's called pliancy, like a flexibility, maybe it's better, quality. And so in Shamatha, it's more of a physical experience of the, 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 the uh, pliancy, flexibility, suppleness of um, the feeling throughout the body. 
and in Vipassana, it's more of a suppleness, a pliancy, a flexibility um, of cognition. When practicing analytical meditation by means of discriminating knowledge until suppleness is attained, one only cultivates a similitude. Now, similitudes are, as you can well, as I'm sure it struck you as like an odd term, like, oh, a similitude. I don't know that I've seen a similitude. Do they have like a lot of legs? Probably. It's like this fancy idea that there's like a, a sometimes they translate this as facsimile, like a, a sort of reprodu reproduction. It's like the not, it's not the real McCoy. It's like a copycat of Vipassana. It's not, the, it's not real Vipassana. However, when suppleness has, ar has arisen, then one really obtains Vipassana. So on the one hand, uh, um, is saying, you know, it's got to be like, uh, based on, well, well, the main thing for me that I get out of this is that there is a Vipassana that's not the Vipassana of the completion stage, which is with suppleness. But there is a Vipassana that happens before that. And okay, it's not full, complete Vipassana, but there is. The essential nature of suppleness and the way it arises, as previously explained in the section dealing with shamatha, according to our root text, sutra unraveling the thought. And this text called the quintessential instructions on Prashnaparamita by Shantipa, which is the one key root text on Vipassana that is not yet available in English. If any of you have any influence with any translators, can you please ask him to translate this anyway? Um, Vipassana is said to be accomplished when suppleness can be induced by the power of analytical meditation itself. Now, this whole issue of analytical and non-analytical meditation we get to in the next section of the text. So I'm going to sort of reserve talking about that until then. But uh, just simply here, um, He's saying, he's implying that normally suppleness comes about through non-analytical meditation. And that's in the stages of leading up towards complete shamatha, uh, or in this case, Vipassana. So that you experience that lightness and suppleness and pliancy of mind when the mind is not in the, the normal analytical conceptual mode. It's easier. Then, then experiencing it, then experiencing suppleness when the mind is analyzing. So the idea is that once you get Vipassana, you can actually maintain Vipassana while you have activity in the mind. Once you connect to that, that uh, resting and not seeing, not finding, then you can rest in the same way with your conceptual mind operating. This applies to both kinds of Vipassana, namely the one focusing on the varieties of phenomena and the one focusing on their mode of being. And for me, this was probably the most interesting line in the entire text. And I don't know if you guys remember all the different categories of Vipassana that Kongchul went through and the other uh, 
uh, traditional authors went through, and Chumper Rinpoche in many ways went through. There's the four levels of Vipassana, the sort of Theravadan version, the Shravaka's Pratyeka Buddhas, there's the Mahayana version, there's the non-Buddhist version, there's the, the Vajrayana version. And then there's uh, Vipassana of the of the uh, true Vipassana and the Vipassana of the past. And then there was the four stages of, of uh, discriminating and examining, and then there were the six discoveries and the three gate. You know, there were like all these different schemes. He didn't mention this one there. All of a sudden, he pulls this out of the hat. He says, "This applies to both kinds of vipassana." And the way he says it, it's sort of like these seem to be the 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 basic scheme of vipassana is that there's vipassana that focuses on conventional, the relative phenomena, on phenomena, and there's Vipassana that focuses on the mode of being means their emptiness. That's code language for the true nature of of phenomena is their indivisible emptiness, luminosity, or suchness, simply. So suddenly there's Vipassana that's uh, sort of um, maybe busy, analytical, working on phenomena. And the traditional scheme is the th- what are called the three skills of the these uh, skandhas. The, um, the skandhas, the ayatanas, and the datus are the three skills. You know, like learning, uh, understanding what makes up a sentient being and what makes up the world, form, and so forth. And uh, Rimshay does this by uh, presenting schemes for understanding the nature of mind. Like, like uh, not just thinking of the mind as one thing, but seeing different aspects of the mind. There's this, the eight consciousnesses, and he wants us to become familiar with the eight consciousnesses. And then he also presents these three types of mind that are sort of obscure of that sort of intellectual mind, the the uh, functional mind, and then the sort of uh, non-conceptual mind. Or, or he, he floats around a little bit. But basically looking at the different aspects of our being. Anyway, Shamatha Vipassana unioned conjoined. Madhyamakas differ with respect to the method of development. They agree on what is to be developed, namely shamatha, vipassana, and their union. And these three are to be practiced in succession. The main point is non-distraction. These three, shamatha, vipassana, and the union of shamatha, vipassana, are the three. And we practice them in succession. And then the main point is not to be distracted. Um, so he says, uh, in the in the matter of achieving non-dual wisdom resulting from the union of shamatha and vipassana, there's all these different versions that uh, the great Madhyamaka masters of the past have presented. <coughs> and he goes through them. Baba Veka does this, Shantideva does that, Kamala Shila does another thing, and Chandrakirti does something else. So four different styles by these four great Madhyamaka masters. All of these are correct on their own paths. All agree at one point, which is that there's three practices, Shramata, Vipassana, and their union, and they should definitely be accomplished in succession since they're related as cause and effect. 
and in all of them, the main point is an undistracted one-pointed mind. And you know, the, the name of the chapter is, um, let's see, the progressive classification of the training in superior samadhi. So, you know, excellent transcendent samadhi, higher samadhi. And the beginning of that is the stages of meditation of shamatha and vipassana, because they're the general basis of all samadhis. So all meditational practices boil down to shamatha and vipassana, and we'll see that in next week's session. I just skipped ahead. Let's see. Wow, that was... We practice the union when practicing meditation with designations. Meditation with designations, um, analytical meditation. Meditation, you working with uh, conceptual frameworks. The full discrimination of phenomena, which uh, of the two, he said there's the Vipassana uh, of the phenomena and there's Vipassana of the mode of being. And so he says, when we're practicing with uh, designation, so we're in the world of phenomena, the full discrimination of those phenomena focuses on <clears throat> the images arising out of shamatha, the feeling that there's something called the breath, the feeling that there's something called the body, the feeling that there's something called a mind, and the feeling that there's something called uh, thoughts which distract us. So we apply Vipassana, full discrimination, on the result of shamatha, and that is union. So when we focus our Vipassana on the experience of shamatha, that's the union. When non-conceptual Vipassana is, is attained, as opposed to Vipassana with designations, they've become one essence, and thus they are unified they being shamatha vipassana at what point can they said to be unified when, when uh you know repeating the same terminology <coughs> let's see kamala shila stages of meditation one he had three parts to this so this is the first part says in that text, it says, when focusing on the essencelessness, i.e. emptiness of all phenomena in a state free of laxity and agitation, laxity and agitation being the, the two main robbers of shamatha and vipassana, where awareness rests without any conceptual effort. So when we're able to actually rest in the result of not finding the path of unifying shamatha and vipassana is completed. So we experience not finding through Vipassana, and then we experience shamatha on the not finding, and that's the union. And the fruition of the practice is enlightenment. Basically, this is the genuine samadhi by the perfection of which non-abiding nirvana, freedom from the bondage of both existence and peace is attained. So this is a Mahayana scheme where in the Mahayana we look at the earlier schools or traditions version of 
nirvana as either being with outflows or without outflows. They have this odd terminology that there's basically a nirvana that's experienced by yogis while they're alive. Arhats experience a nirvana while they're alive. That's a diminished state of nirvana because one still has a body and is subject to karma. And that real nirvana only occurs when we die. And that's the view of the of the Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas. And the Mahayana said the whether you're alive or dead has nothing to do with nirvana. Nirvana goes beyond those. And uh, so this nirvana is described as non-abiding, doesn't abide anywhere in the body, in life or death. And it's thereby it's free from existence, means samsara. And peace means nirvana. These are sort of code words, samsara nirvana. Such a samadhi, the union of Shamadeva Pashna is authentic. Maitripa, who is Marpa's uh, Mahamudra guru, says the phrase by correct authentic samadhi means that the conjoined practice, conjoined is such a weird term, but anyway, practice of Shamadeva Pashna is correct authentic samadhi. That is what accomplishes the path. Perfection of this results in the attainment of non-abiding nirvana. And uh, the quotes repeat this. Here's a nice phrase. If the practitioner familiarizes oneself with shamatha vipassana, one will be free from the fetters of rigidity and conceptuality. Rigidity. <laughs> rigidity is like fixed mind. There's, there's like mind that's fixed on just like on uh, the sense of things being real. And then there's the conceptual mind that explains why things are real to ourselves. In the post-meditation phase with the understanding of the illusion-like nature of all phenomena, one should be a child of illusion. One should exert oneself in applying skillful means such as making offerings to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, practicing compassion towards all sentient beings, dedicating all virtue, and so forth. So outside of meditation, we act as a Bodhisattva for the benefit of others. I'm going to skip that. And we have all of 10 minutes left. So let's see. Uh, so we'll go through the traditional stuff tonight, and then we'll, and then we'll come back to Trump Premiers next week, which actually works pretty well. So let's see. The wrong package. What page are we on? Eight. So the Royal Seal of Mahamudra. Shamatha is responsible for ensuring that the mind does not waver from the object. Okay. After the realization of suchness, perverted views can no longer shake the mind. It remains like a mountain, which is the work of Vipassana. Interesting. So um, Vipassana uh, uh, leads us to the realization of suchness, and uh, we no longer are shaken by the perverted views of believing anything to be real. And then we experience an unmoving state of being, a shamatha type being. And this is uh, 
the union of the two. Therefore, both of them are needed. By the strength of shamatha distraction, it ceases through Vipassana. It becomes like a mountain. So uh, there's no more distraction. And then it's it's completely immovable and unconquerable through Vipassana because there's nothing to, to distract anything. The whole framework of distraction dissolves. Whereas in shamatha, there's still a sense of, oh, there could be distraction, but there's not. When we realize the the emptiness of all phenomena and self, then there's nothing to distract anything. I'm going to skip a little bit, summarizing these topics. Mind essence is included in non-meditation and non-distraction. So this is a little glimpse into the Mahamudra tradition. I hope you'll bear with me. I know it's sort of boring, this Mahamudra stuff over and over again. I'm being facetious here. This is a very cool presentation of uh, meditation from the Mahamudra tradition. Non-meditation and non-distraction. This should be known by beginners, it's me. Non-meditation is on the side of shamatha, relaxation. Total conundrum, non-meditation and shamatha. Isn't that like contradictory? So dullness arises when it's excessive. Non-meditation is is that ideally shamatha becomes refined to the point where we're not meditating, where the project quality no longer exists, and we're just completely relaxed in stillness. Not this doesn't mean there's no thoughts, but we're relaxing in the stillness around thought. Non-distraction, on the other hand, is on the side of Vipassana and tightness. So agitation arises when it's excessive. So Vipassana has a sense of precision or tightness in the sense of looking. The looking creates creates a subtle tightness. And so we have to not do it to excess. Otherwise, agitation will rise. Just like in, in, in Shamaja, if we relax too much, we'll fall asleep. So we have to have between tight and loose, that famous phrase. Um, this is, once the mind, the root of all samsara nirvana has been realized, rests carefree by not meditating. Once it rests in you, to look for it elsewhere is to be deluded. Being neither this nor that is the continuous state of the innate. And this is uh, Saraha's presentation of those two qualities of non-meditation and non-distraction. And uh, the author here says, nevertheless, in a state of nothing at all to meditate upon, which was non-meditation, he's saying, saying don't, don't think you can do non-meditation right away. This is a somewhat one-pointed mind. It's definitely required in which there's a degree of non-distraction based upon whatever experience one has. So don't try to do non-meditation. Non-meditation will arise when there's suppleness. So he gives a bunch of other quotes and he says, in this context, arrest one's mind of its own accord without meditating. It's shamatha. This is the Vajrayana version. 
of the same presentation we saw in the sutra in the, in the, earlier. The mind resting in it of its own accord, in itself. The mind resting in itself without meditating, without doing anything. Meditating is another doing. Not to wander from the ultimate is Vipassana. So, not to uh, entertain conceptual uh, belief in phenomena and reality of anything. And then he says, according to the sutra system, this is called thought-free wisdom. I'm sorry, I should read this. Non-meditation and non-distraction acquiring the same taste in this way, as he just described, comprises all the points of Shamatha Vipassana united. According to the sutra system, this is called thought-free wisdom. Thought-free, undiluted awareness, natural awareness. In Vajrayana, it's called co-emergent wisdom, natural luminosity, utter emptiness. So these are rather highfalutin terms in the Vajrayana. Co-emergent wisdom, natural luminosity, utter, no, utter, utter emptiness. And they're the same as this experience of Shamatha Vipassana United, just with like, like a good, good marketing name, good naming. In other words, not to conceptualize any other thing apart from the object of attention and to settle the mind one-pointedly on that itself is shamatha. To fully distinguish the object's nature and discern it. Let's say it's the breath. Or else to be convinced about the realization that the object's very essence does not exist as Vipassana. So it's not just like earlier we saw this reference to the experience of great clarity in Ken McLeod's thing. Great clarity alone is not Vipassana. Vipassana is seeing the nature of phenomena, the absence of nature of phenomena. Merging these two is uh, Shamatha Vipassana united. Let's see another short one. Shamatha's, uh, let's see, this is. Uh, that. <laughs> Shamat is generally held to mean abiding in the state of bliss, clarity, and non-thought after conceptual thinking has naturally subsided. Those are the three qualities of uh, the nature of mind that one experiences when uh, we've come to the culmination of Shamatha. Vipassana means to see nakedly and vividly the essence of that mind, which is self-cognizant or self-aware, objectless, without an without a, any object subjects framework, <clears throat> free from exaggeration and denigration. Exaggeration and denigration are not uh, like boasting and slander. Exaggeration and denigration are technical, philosophical terms. Exaggeration means thinking that things either exist or don't exist. And denigration means thinking that there's no things to not exist. And that therefore there's no cause and effect. Uh, so, uh, so in other words, staying in the middle way view. In another way, shamatha is said to be the absence of thought. Vipassana is recognizing the essence of thought. 
there's numerous other ways of talking about it, but in actuality, whatever manifests or its experience does not transcend the inseparability of these two practices. Stillness and thinking both are nothing but the display of the mind alone. The two main modes of the mind is stillness and thinking. And these are nothing but the display of the mind to recognize the essence of that mind at the time of either of them. Whatever is occurring is the nature of a partial. Shamatha is not to become involved in solidified clinging to any of the external appearances of the six collections. Uh, external appearance is, uh, I don't know, that, uh, I'm a little skeptical of the external part. That implies there's something that's done separately with the internal appearance, but I think it's just with the appearance, basically, of the six collections. The six collections are baseball cards, wine. No, what are the six? The six collections are generally the, the six senses, uh, and their objects and the consciousness that arises from them, I think is what's being talked about. All Vipassana is the unobstructed manifestation of perception. Thus, within perception itself, the unity of Shamatha Vipassana is complete. Vividly recognizing the essence of thought as it occurs as Shamatha. That is most interesting. You would think that's Vipassana. Recognizing the essence of thought as it occurs as shamatha. Directly liberating it within natural mind free from concepts is vipassana. So in shamatha, we have the ability to um, experience the essence of, the, of our mind as it happens. But we're not freeing it from concepts. Because shamatha is meditating on a conceptual image. Thus, within conceptual thinking, shamatha and vipassana are also unity. So he's going through these different stages. He was going through the still and moving mind, and then he went through uh, the sense perceptions, and then he went through thought. Furthermore, looking into the essence without solidly following after a disturbing emotion, even when it rises intensely as shamatha, and then he's going through uh, the disturbing emotions, the six kleshas. And this is a traditional scheme of Mahamudra as a practice looking at the difference between stillness and moving mind and seeing that there is no sameness or difference and looking at uh, perception and then look, looking at thought itself and then looking at emotions. And that's like the way of practicing the union of Shamatha Vipassana in the Mahamudra tradition is doing it in those four spheres of experience. So Shamatha is looking at the essence without solidly following a disturbing emotion. So anger arises and we just experience its essence without going after it. The empty and cognizant nakedness within which the observing awareness and the observed disturbing emotion have no separate existence as Vipassana. So Vipassana is, is experiencing or understanding the nature of the emotion and the emotioner, so to speak. Thus the unity of Shamatha Vipassana is complete within disturbing emotions as well. Sorry to take so much time earlier and blabbing and uh, because now we have so much more to go through. 
So uh, next week, we'll have to start here on page 12. And uh, conclude for tonight. Any comments before we do that? Comments, questions, suggestions? I guess uh, the lurking question is, do I need to now add another class since I've not covered the material? And maybe, maybe I need to torture you with a 13th class. And 13 is a rather lucky number in the Tibetan tradition, so maybe that's uh, appropriate and auspicious. <laughs> okay, I see some thumbs. That's good. <laughs> so I guess we'll do that. And uh, so uh, we'll do that and then we'll conclude with uh, the chanting. That's right. Oh, but I didn't let anyone speak. I just spoke. Any comments or questions? <laughs> okay. This marriage may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara, may it free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regions rest and bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you all. Thank you very much Thank for you, bearing Jared. with us. Take Thank care you. and see you soon. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Thank you, Emily, tech host. My pleasure.